Good morning, church. What a blessing. You glad to be here today? Anybody love Jesus in this house? All right, I'm in the right place. So do I have a scripture reader for you today? We got a whole gaggle of kingdom kids that are coming forward and going to share our scripture with us today. Come on down, kids. Here you go, spread out. How about another round of applause for the Kingdom Kids? We are truly blessed with a great future here at WFR, and that's evidenced uh, by what you just witnessed, uh, hearing the Word of God from these young mouths. Isn't that what Jesus said? We have to become like little children, right? And that's what we see here. What a blessing. Uh, someone has a birthday today, Beverly Dobbs. Are you in here, Beverly? Right here, Beverly. 
I'm not going to ask her how old she is. I'm sure it's still holding at 39. Oh, yeah, right, good. Uh, Beverly does a lot for our church and one kingdom, so thank you, Beverly. We love you. Uh, I wanted to mention, uh, I, I was surprised this morning to wake up and uh, watch Fox and Friends for a little bit, and I saw my brother, sister-in-law, Jason and Missy, on there promoting their uh, Christmas special for Duck Family Treasure, so I wanted to at least mention it uh, to you guys. Tonight it's going to be on Fox News at 9 o'clock. You don't want to miss that. What's One of the blessings of uh, being on Fox is you get to talk about Jesus. And somebody says, well, do you like Fox News? Yeah. And they say, why? Because you can talk about Jesus on Fox News. Uh, and so uh, their show, Duck Family Treasure, is on, of course, Fox Nation. But they're putting the uh, Christmas special on tonight. It's a great blessing. So be sure and check that out. Uh, I know Jason, Missy, are, and Cy and Jeff and everybody are proud of it uh, because they get to talk about our Lord and Savior, which is a great blessing. Last week, Mike looked at the uh, the interactions uh, that Jesus had on his final march of destiny into Jerusalem uh, in Luke 18 and 19. And so we're kind of at that that big place uh, in the text where now things are coming together. If you could imagine it, it'd be like taking a triangle and turning it on its side. And all that Luke has been sharing with us is now drawing down to this major event that's going to change the destiny of all of us. The king is coming. And because of that, the kingdom will be here and will be recognized. Last week, I I loved it because Mike talked about the interactions that show you sort of the kingdom mindset and the kingdom values. There was a persistent praying widow who was looking for help. There were desperate and excommunicated tax collectors. And one of them, you remember, was praying outside the temple. There were innocent children and hopeful parents. They were looking for a blessing from Jesus, just like what we just witnessed here. Potential. Lives that are being laid out for the kingdom of God. There was an impressive, law-abiding, rich young ruler who sought eternal life But because of his own possessions and his own life, he walked away very sad. And it shows us something about kingdom, right? It's about a choice. You're either all in on the kingdom of God or you're not. You can't have both. There was a blind beggar who knew how big this moment was. And so he shouted out, even though everybody was telling him to be quiet, son of David, save us. He knew how big this moment was. And then there was a crooked chief tax collector who went back to his own youth and he climbed a tree just to get a better look at Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you climb a tree to get a better look at Jesus? I would. I mean, I may not get very far. Maybe that lower limb, I'm climbing. It's that sort of heart. It's that sort of mindset. So Luke is showing us what the kingdom looks like because now the king is near. He tells them a parable in Luke 19 uh, about these men who had had these minas, which was in their day like three months of wage. 
And so I've heard a lot of sermons about investing, uh, about earning, about risk and reward out of that text, but that's not what he's talking about. He was talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is not about ruling. Even though everybody in that crowd and everybody even in Jesus' inner circle thought that it was about ruling. If you just put us in charge, and the oppressed have been saying this throughout all of humanity, if you just put us in charge, we'll make things right. And over and over throughout human history, you put the oppressed in charge, and guess what they become? The oppressor, the tyrant, the dictator, human nature. The kingdom of God is not about that. The kingdom of God is about submitting, serving, working to expand the effect of the king. The kingdom is not about the love of power, but about the power of love. And that's different from any other kingdom on the earth. How many thirst for power in the moment until it's not there? The kingdom of God is not about possessing earthly wealth and lands, but it's about the processing of spiritual growth, of growing, of impacting, of bearing fruit of a Holy Spirit that now lives inside of you. That's the power of the kingdom. The kingdom is not about insurrection, but it's about resurrection. It's about changed lives. It's about a resurrected king living in a resurrected me. That's what the song says, right? That's what Jesus came here for us to know. And so now we come to this moment, this big moment in Luke 19 and verse 28. And in this moment, this has been talked about for up to a thousand years prior that it was coming. In Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God with us. That's what we're celebrating this time of year. That passage in that moment. Micah 5:2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and ancient times. Our Lord and Savior, our King. Second Samuel 7 and verse 12, God is speaking to Samuel to give a message to David, and he says this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, talking about David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Our king. Zechariah and Zechariah 9. And this sets up the moment we're going to get to today in Luke says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious and lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Can we say an amen to that? Did you notice that? It's victorious, it's righteous, but it's lowly. So we come to this place in the text, Luke 19, 28, and we see what's in your margin of your Bible says the triumphal entry. And I suppose it was, because now that we're looking back 2,000 years later, we realize what a triumph this really was. But in the moment, did it really look like a triumphal entry? Jesus riding in on this donkey foal? It looked more like this humble man of the people who was getting some praise, although it would be short-lived, and appreciation, because he would make that same trek a week later going the other direction toward the cross. And trust me, they weren't lined up to say, Hosanna, our king, even though that was as much a triumph as anything, him going to the cross. So it just shows you that in that moment of him coming as king, It was done in humility, not on a big stallion, not with weapons, not with an entourage with all of their armor and all of their weapons, but instead a lowly man, a carpenter's son, who came here to die. That was the triumphal entry. There was a reminder of course, of his enemies, because immediately the Pharisees said, tell your disciples to be quiet, rebuke them. You're going to get yourself in trouble. And all of us, what do you mean, Hosanna, son of David, the king? And Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out, because this is a moment. I'm here, even as humble as it was. And then in verse 41, of chapter 19, Jesus wept. One of the few times that we see this happen in his ministry. Another one was in John 11, remember in 35, when Lazarus had died. And even though he was about to raise him from the dead, he wept because our God, our Savior, our King is sad at death and destruction. He doesn't want judgment. He wants salvation. That's what this kingdom is all about. So he looked at Jerusalem and he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but you didn't recognize the time of God's coming for you. And he was saddened by that and he wept about that. He looked ahead 40 years into the future and he saw a wrecked Jerusalem and so many murdered people. And so many terrible things and a temple that was destroyed and he wept. Our Lord cares about his people. And so now after he's entered the city, he's about to enter that temple. And it reminded me of another prophecy in Zechariah 6 and verse 12. Tell him that this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. 
It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Something that had never happened in Israel's history. Because you couldn't be a king and a priest. But now Jesus was going to be both. An eternal king and an eternal high priest. And so now he goes into that same temple and he cleanses it of corruption, of hypocrites, of liars, of thieves, of double-minded men who did not love God but loved money. And so he clears them out. Once again, this is a moment that was pointed to Isaiah 56, 7. My house, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He said in Jeremiah seven eleven, but you have made my house a den of robbers. Psalm 69, 9, his disciples remembered zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus went into that temple because that was his house. That was his father's house. And he cleared out. You remember back in Luke chapter 2, whenever Jesus got left behind when he was 12 years old? The only moment of his childhood that we even know about. And I'm not so sure he got left behind or maybe he stayed behind. You know, because he just wanted to check it out. Probably because of his age, it was his first time to go to the temple at the at this Passover feast. And so they realize after a day that he's not with them and they've got to travel a day back and then they look another day. So three days have passed and they can't find him until they finally make their way to the temple. And when they do that, there he is. And people are marveling at the questions that he's asking, but also the answers that he's giving as a 12-year-old boy. And then I love it when his parents said, why would you treat us this way and just come back here and come to the temple? And he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? This is my house. And he even recognized that at 12 years old. And so he cleaned out the hypocrites and the thieves and the double-minded. And in fact, it's a lot like what he does in us his new house because you can't have both right you can't have hypocrisy and stealing and lying and double-mindedness but when you embrace him when you accept him when you accept his invitation to come to him because he comes to you all that becomes cleared out and the holy spirit comes to reside now we are his house And that's the moment he was showing. They didn't understand it. They didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. They questioned his authority. But he had every authority. Because now he would build a new temple. The ultimate house of worship and intimacy. Because now the presence of God wouldn't be locked away in a secret room with a curtain hanging that no one could go through. Yet for one man, one day a year, now that temple curtain would be torn. And we would all have access because we all become the house, the living temple, the living stones, according to First Peter 2. Because this temple is available for all. Paul would put it this way in Ephesians 2. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. People say, well, where are you going today? I'm going to the house of God. No, you are the house of God. You're just going to join a few more. You and I are his temple. And he came to clear out everything the evil one would put in his place. Because we are his house. So this eternal king has come this eternal priest has cleared out the house to now produce a new house the last temple will ever need and you know what he does he sits down as a king and he holds court luke 20 and 21 are him holding court in the temple courts he teaches because not only do we have a king and a priest but we have a shepherd we have a teacher a counselor, a guide. His Holy Spirit would be poured out on the day of Pentecost for us to receive that directly, but in this moment, he was doing the teaching. And he had some interesting lessons to teach these people. The first one comes in Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 8. And the first thing that happens is his enemies, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Sanhedrin, is they question his authority, but they do it dishonestly. Because they really know who he claims he is. He hasn't hidden that. Throughout his ministry, he's talked about whose authority he has and who he is. But now they want to trap him because they're looking for a way to kill him. They didn't know that he came here to die. They thought they had the power to kill the king and the eternal high priest. But they didn't. So they asked dishonest questions. So Jesus, as he often does, puts it right back on them. Well, what about John's baptism? He asked these people. Is it from God? Now he's put the onus back on them. And they get together in their little family feud huddle, and they discuss it among themselves. Well, if we say yes, that it is from God, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you follow him? But if we say it's not, then the people who know that John was a prophet will turn on us and kill us. So you know what their answer was? We don't know. And he says, then neither do I. But he did know. You know what he was teaching these people and what he teaches us? Jesus doesn't answer dishonest questions. You want to come to Christ for anything other than to embrace him as Lord. You want him to be your cosmic bellhop or to help you out of a jam or hopefully maybe when something happens, you'll have him to rely on. He doesn't want you coming to him in that manner. He wants you to submit your life to him and to honestly say, I'm looking at myself. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve you. I need you. That's his answer to us. He doesn't answer dishonest questions. In verses 9 through 19, 
he tells them a parable of the tenants, and he's reminding them of the limitations of time and the urgency of choice. Because you see, it's tick-tock. Everybody's on the clock. They were on the clock in that day because he knew exactly what was going to happen after his death. He knew exactly what was going to happen in A.D. 70, and he knows exactly what's going to happen when he comes back. And we're on the clock. That was the purpose of the parable. He closed it like this. He said, what is the meaning of that which is written? Verse 17 of Luke 20. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Talking about himself. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. You think about that. Does that leave any wiggle room around Jesus being your Lord and Savior? There's no way around it, folks. It's him or it's death. It's eternal life with him or an eternal death. Without him, there's no other choice, and it's tick-tock, because we're all on the clock. In Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, they thought they had him again. They come in, they say, well, what about Caesar? Now, once again, it's a dishonest question, because they're looking for a way to trap him and to be able to run back to the authorities and say, insurrection. What about Caesar? Is it right, so they make it a moral question, is it right that we should pay taxes to Caesar? Then they stand back. I mean, I could ask you today, is it right for the IRS to take all your money? There's a murmur in the crowd. So see, it still works, right? But Jesus, so brilliant. Somebody got a coin? He didn't have one. <laughs> Tells you something about Jesus. Somebody got a coin? Anybody? Anybody? He gets the coin. Whose picture is on the coin? Caesar. Then you give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Boom! Drop that mic. The end of that discussion. What he's saying is you asked a stupid question. I'm not concerned about Caesar's taxes. Caesar will do what Caesar does. And I would say the same thing to us. Man, we get twisted and bent out of shape, and we got the biggest election. It's the one to end all elections. And Yeah, we said that the last three. What's going to happen? They've hired new IRS agents. Jesus doesn't care. The government's going to do what the government's going to do. We have to give God what is God's. And you know what he deserves? All of us. All in. He is above government, and so are we. So you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Man, what a lesson. In Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 39, they came to him with another scenario. This time it was the Sadducees, who didn't even believe in the resurrection, but they had a whole story about it. And marriage, and they go back and back and forth and saying all these things, and this is going to happen. What about this? He says, you don't know what you're talking about. His message is always focused on the eternal. 
They were asking questions about marriage in this life. He says, you don't understand the next life, but I do. I came from there. I am eternal. He knows what it's going to be like. All this has already happened for him. I'll tell you this in a practical way. When Lisa and I understood what it meant to be brother and sister with Christ as Lord, guess what happened? Our marriage stock went way up. Because the eternal is what matters the most. And that was his message. In Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47, he talked about these elites, these self-righteous, these men who like to take advantage of others. And what I figured out from that is he abhors hypocrisy. So you say, well, what should we take from that lesson, Al? Don't be a hypocrite. Be honest. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. No, the church is full of sinners. The difference in a hypocrite is the one who won't admit it. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. In Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, he saw a widow woman, which has already been mentioned here this morning, go up and give all she had. And he compared that to people who had a lot of means who were giving. Giving is good whether you're rich or poor. But you know what he said in that moment? I love those who are willing to go all in for me. That's the heart of the kingdom of God. Whether you have much or whether you have little, that's what that widow did. She went all in. And finally, in Luke 21, 5 through 38, he gives us a clear choice. Believe in me, follow me, or suffer the consequences. He tells more in detail about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. And once again, it's tick-tock. Time was ticking. But you know what? Our Lord is so patient because he gave those people he was talking to 40 years to come to him. Just like the Almighty did in the desert. And Jesus was a part of that as well. When he gave them 40 years to trust him enough that he delivered them from something to something. But a lot of them wouldn't listen. And here's what he said at the end, and this applies to us today. In 2134, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. And even though he was talking to them in a moment where he knew exactly when that day was going to happen, that same thing applies to us, brothers. Because a day is coming when he will return. And do we want to have wasted it away on carousing and drunkenness and the things of this world? It will close on you like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So that's our challenge today. There's an urgency about all of this. You see, our king has come. His kingdom has been established. We're only waiting for the final step of the resurrection of our bodies. So the question is, how should we then live? What should we 
believe. I guess my question to you this morning is, are you kingdom ready? Because that's what this moment is about. Jesus is about to give his life. He's about to be raised from the dead. He's about to begin a process that now, 2,000 years later, we still carry on proudly. But if you've never submitted your heart and your will to him, then you haven't taken that step. And it's tick-tock. The end is coming. It's probably near. I know it's nearer than it was 2,000 years ago. The question is, are you ready for it today? If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus, and some have, even today, they've submitted their hearts and their lives to him. They were immersed in water. I saw it when I came in. New births, new lives. What a blessing. If you've never done that, or if you're watching online, you've never made that step, today is your day to believe in him. Or maybe just to make a course correction, to not be that hypocrite or that liar or thief that's in his house. Because if it's in your house, we need to get it out. And we need to get it out today. If you have a need at all, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing? <clears throat>